Hello everyone and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host Tony, and today we're going to look at The Operative No One Lives Forever, a first-person shooter developed by Monolith Productions and published by Fox Interactive, released in the year 2000 for the Windows computer platform with eventual ports to both the Apple Macintosh and Sony PlayStation 2 in 2002. We're going to talk about that game in just a couple minutes, but first, as is customary, just a little bit of housekeeping up front. This is episode number 42. I am excited to be here. I hope all of you are as well. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about games and classic technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you could reach out. I have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. I have a Twitter account with the handle at classicgamingt. And we also have a Discord server. The link to the server is in the show notes. That's probably the best place to interact because that's a pretty active area. A lot more active than what we see on Twitter and on email. So I'm out there pretty much every single day along with a bunch of other people from the community. So if you feel so inclined, that's probably the best place to start the discussion. For anyone who may be new, welcome. I do just want to give a brief overview of the anatomy of an episode because, for the most part, we follow a very similar format and structure for every single episode that we do. We always start by talking about the history of the game in question, the historical context, where does it sit in the overall history of video and computer gaming, and then we move into a pseudo-review kind of section. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we assign a numerical ranking or star ratings or anything like that. But we do look at every single game from several different perspectives. We take a look at the graphics. How does the game look? The sound and music. How does the game sound? The narrative and or story, if the game has one. Playability and controls and overall feel. What does it feel like to play the game today versus when it may have been released 20, 30, maybe even 40 plus years ago? And we do all of that to reach a verdict as far as how well the game holds up today. And to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. It is a certifiable classic. You should go out and play it today. It has not aged at all. It is just as good as it ever has been. It truly is a classic gaming experience. Just beyond the Pantheon are our Golden Oldies. These are still really good experiences. I highly recommend that you try them, especially if you have nostalgia for the title in question or you enjoy the genre. You are almost guaranteed to have a good time. These are still great experiences. They're not quite Pantheon level for one of potentially any number of reasons, but they are still really strong games and I still highly encourage you to check them out. Beyond the Golden Oldies, we reach our Mediocre Mentions. This is where we start getting into the realm of games that I cannot recommend wholeheartedly to the general population. You may still have a good time, especially if you enjoy the genre in which the game lives, but for the most part, these games may have aged just a little bit, may have had a couple of issues to begin with, even in their original design, so I can't recommend them that broadly to the entire gaming population. And then beyond the mediocre mentions, we reach the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them so you don't have to. I cannot recommend anybody play these games today. They have either aged incredibly poorly or they may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day. 
That is No One Lives Forever. The operative, No One Lives Forever, or as it's commonly known, No One Lives Forever, is a first-person shooter that was developed by Monolith Productions and published by Fox Interactive back in the year 2000 for the Windows computer platform with a couple of other ports that would follow a couple years later. Now, before we can talk about No One Lives Forever, we need to go back and revisit the state of first-person shooters in the mid-90s, specifically early 1996, which is when 3D Realms' classic Duke Nukem 3D was released. Long-time listeners may recall that we did an episode devoted exclusively to Duke Nukem 3D several months ago. For those who may not have listened to that one, though, I want to give a very brief recap so that we're all starting from the same frame of reference. Duke Nukem 3D was designed and developed by 3D Realms, a company that began its existence as Apogee Software, which was a computer game publisher and pioneer of the shareware model for software distribution. Apogee Software was responsible for publishing a number of early first-person shooter titles, with perhaps its most notable release being id Software's Wolfenstein 3D, which was of course the proverbial grandfather of the first-person shooter genre. Eventually, Apogee Software decided to begin developing their own titles, rather than simply publishing other developers' games. While the company would work on a variety of internal titles in the early 90s, focus began to shift as three-dimensional technology started to become more prominent in computer games. Now remember, when I say three-dimensional technology, we're talking early 90s three-dimensional technology. We're still before the concept of 3D acceleration was even a thing yet. But that didn't stop development teams from beginning to explore creating their worlds using 3D, or perhaps more accurately, pseudo-3D graphics. With the push to 3D technology, Apogee Software decided to rebrand itself as 3D Realms, an indicator that the company was now going to be focused exclusively on creating three-dimensional experiences for gamers all around the world. And as 3D Realms, the team decided that one of their first projects was going to be a first-person shooter, utilizing a character they originally created as a two-dimensional side-scrolling action game, similar in some ways to id Software's Commander Keen series. Of course, that character was Duke Nukem, and the first-person shooter that 3D Realms would eventually create was Duke Nukem 3D. Duke Nukem 3D was immensely popular, and it was designed to provide an advanced first-person shooter experience, especially compared to id Software's mega juggernaut Doom, which was pretty much the leader in the first-person shooter market, at least at this time. While many people cite Doom as being a 3D first-person shooter, the fact is, it really isn't. The game engine and most of the graphics and assets in the game world are decidedly two-dimensional, but because of fancy graphics tricks, the game creates the sensation of exploring a three-dimensional space. 
Duke Nukem 3D, through its use of the build engine, would go beyond the Doom engine's restrictions, with the inclusion of sloped floors, moving platforms, jumping, interactive environments, and vertical spaces that you can navigate via a jetpack, which, by the way, was just plain awesome. While still not a truly 3D game, Duke Nukem got a lot closer to that eventual graphics revolution than nearly any first-person shooter that came before it, though others did dabble in similar mechanics, like LucasArts' Star Wars Dark Forces. Beyond the graphics and the overall world design, though, perhaps the most important evolution in the genre was the fact that Duke Nukem 3D featured an unsilent protagonist who never missed an opportunity to add a quip or one-liner as players decimated the alien menace plaguing Earth. In many first-person shooters up to this point, you played as an unnamed character. Other than knowing you were going to pretty much be a one-person army, there was very little in the way of character development. Duke Nukem 3D added a voice and personality to the mix, which was almost unheard of at the time. Other than, once again, Dark Forces, which did not have a voiced character, but did, in fact, have a narrative to go along with the overall gameplay. Duke Nukem 3D, though... It took the world by storm, and as you might imagine after such a resounding success, the public was anxious to see what 3D Realm's next game was going to be. So before we continue, I want to take a step back and discuss the way many video game companies schedule and manage their game releases. And to make things more real than theoretical, we're going to use 3D Realms as an example. 3D Realms, as both a game publisher and game developer, can at any point in time have numerous games at various points in the development process. It's not like it's a purely sequential linear schedule, meaning they ship game number one and then they begin work on game number two. For some smaller companies, sure, that might be exactly how they operate. But once you have a fairly well-developed company, you often build your staff to be able to accommodate multiple games in the pipeline. What that means is that game number one might release onto store shelves, but at the same time, game number two is already in test, and game number three is in active development, and game number four may have already had a draft design created. In the 90s, where game development began to evolve into a state where games would be developed by teams of people rather than solo developers, plotting out your release and development roadmap was pretty much the only way to ensure you'd have a steady state of releases for consumers to purchase and enjoy. At the point of Duke Nukem's release in early 1996, 3D Realms had no less than four games at some stage of the product release lifecycle, including two first-person shooters that, even though they began development before Duke Nukem 3D had been released, were being designed to take the newly formed Duke formula and evolve it further. Both of those games would end up releasing in 1997. They were Shadow Warrior and Blood. For the purposes of our discussion, we're going to focus on Blood, which began development in 1995 at a company called Q Studios, which was effectively an independent company that 3D Realms was bankrolling with the intent of publishing their titles. After Duke Nukem's success, the game started to get promoted pretty heavily, and beginning in June of 1996, the team began publishing weekly updates to their website to keep the public aware of the game's overall progress. Those updates began to get a fair amount of attention from the gaming public, and many gamers were looking forward to another first-person shooter from the 3D Realm stable, this time with an added focus on even more over-the-top violence and carnage, which, by the way, is why the game was called Blood in the first place. 
the game would garner attention beyond the gaming public, as various companies began looking at the work Q Studios was doing, and in some cases, started to consider whether it might make sense to purchase the company, and by extension, their in-development first-person shooter. One of those companies was Monolith Productions. Monolith Productions had been founded in 1994 by a group of seven game developers and designers, most of whom had worked at various gaming companies prior to striking out on their own, including 3D Realms, Squaresoft, and Sierra Online. Upon coming together under a single independent roof, the team began to think about what their first solo efforts were going to be, and as with many new startup kinds of situations, it would take some time for any semblance of direction to begin forming. In fact, it was stated in a couple of articles that the team had a ton of advanced, industry-changing ideas, they just had difficulty coming up with what to focus on. These ideas, by the way, extended beyond just game development, and Monolith had actually started as two separate brands, Monolith Games and Monolith Studios. Monolith Games, as you might guess, was the game development arm of Monolith, while Monolith Studios would focus on projects that didn't live solely within the gaming world, things like 3D rendering, animation, music, and motion capture, just to name a few. Without a singular game or vision to unite the team, they decided to focus instead on working on a couple of different projects. One subset of the team would begin prototyping and creating various demo kinds of software for the soon-to-be-released Windows 95 operating system, while the other team would actually begin working with Microsoft directly to help create what would eventually become the DirectX Software Development Kit. Now, I don't want to dive deep, at least today, into the history of gaming on Windows operating systems. But suffice it to say, back in the early 90s, Windows was not an environment that game developers really enjoyed creating for. At the time, MS-DOS was pretty much the operating system of choice, with game developers having the ability to control nearly all facets of a game and its ability to interface with a given computer's hardware. Windows, however, created an abstraction between the computer's hardware and software, which took some of that control away from game developers and, at the same time, led to software incompatibilities and generally poorer performance than DOS-based titles. Windows 95 was intended to change that landscape by embedding gaming support directly into the operating system, unlike Windows 3.1, which was designed pretty much exclusively for productivity. As the release of Windows 95 started to get closer... Microsoft sent out a survey to a number of high-profile developers to help gauge interest in porting their titles, or even perhaps developing titles exclusively for the Windows 95 platform. The general response to those surveys was not good. Developers recalled very vividly the messy situation around Windows 3.1 game support, and they assumed that Windows 95 would be no different. After receiving that negative feedback, the team decided to focus on creating a way to make it easier for developers to create games for the Windows operating system. Rather than needing to manage hardware access directly, what if developers could use a fully featured and integrated software development kit that was 100% compatible with Windows, and by extension, would effectively do that low-level work for them? Rather than having to worry about developing for a bunch of different proprietary hardware platforms, What if they could develop for a single software platform that would ensure full compatibility across a wide variety of hardware configurations, with the only requirement being that the system had to be running Windows 95? Those questions, and the expectation that developers would migrate to the new operating system if the process was made more seamless and stable, are what led the team to begin developing DirectX. 
DirectX is an all-inclusive software development kit that allows developers to write their code for that platform and ensure that it would be able to execute on any number of computer systems and hardware configurations, assuming, that is, that a computer's hardware is compatible with DirectX in general. Consisting of various libraries supporting sound, graphics, network play, and player controls, among others, DirectX was intended to make it simple, so to speak, for developers to create titles for Windows, all the while ensuring that performance remained as good, if not better, than the DOS titles that had come before them. While the reality of the situation is that it took some time before Windows would catch up to DOS from a gaming perspective, these early efforts did in fact sway a number of developers to jump on the Windows bandwagon, with perhaps the most interesting story centering on the port of id Software's Doom. Microsoft, in an effort to encourage developers to come to their platform, came up with a number of different ways to sweeten the pot. For id Software, Microsoft reached out to John Carmack, who was the main programmer for the Doom engine, and asked if he'd be agreeable supporting a port of Doom to the Windows 95 platform assuming Microsoft did all the work and id Software retained all of the publishing rights. That sounded pretty much like a no-brainer, so Carmack accepted the deal, and the port began getting worked under the leadership of Microsoft employee Gabe Newell. Yes, the same Gabe Newell who in a couple years would leave the company to form Valve. If it weren't for Gabe Newell, we wouldn't have had Doom on Windows 95. And we wouldn't have seen Bill Gates star in a Doom promotional video, which, by the way, you absolutely should look up and watch. It's readily available on YouTube, and it is kind of awesome. Anyway, as part of the DirectX development effort, Microsoft contracted with Monolith to develop an additional library for the tool to be known as Direct Engine. The thought was, beyond just providing routines for handling sounds, graphics, and things like that, Microsoft would provide an embedded three-dimensional engine as well that developers could use, thereby once again cutting down the barrier to entry for developing titles on Windows 95. As we've talked about on earlier episodes of the podcast, developing a game engine is often a daunting task, and in the early to mid-90s, there were really only two major first-person shooter engines on the market. There was id Software's id Tech engine, which is what powered all of their first-person shooters, and the Build engine, which 3D Realms used for Duke Nukem 3D and was also using for Shadow Warrior and Blood. Direct Engine would enable any developer working in the Windows ecosystem to have a fully featured three-dimensional engine for use in their projects without having to worry about licensing technology from other developers or having to code an engine themselves. Ultimately, the Direct Engine concept would fail to materialize, and Microsoft would seek to abandon the project. Monolith, however, saw value in the work they had accomplished to date and decided to purchase the intellectual property associated with Direct Engine for use in their own in-house 3D engine, which would be rechristened as LithTech. More on that one in a little bit. As mentioned, outside of that DirectX development, Monolith spent a good portion of their staff and time working on various ideas and demos that would hopefully, eventually, materialize into full-fledged gaming experiences. In late 1996, though, an opportunity would present itself. Like we talked about, 3D Realms had two major projects in the works following Duke Nukem 3D's release. One was Shadow Warrior, which was being developed in-house, and the other was Blood, which was being developed by Q Studios while being bankrolled by 3D Realms. 3D Realms was quickly realizing that coordinating both games was going to be a challenge, so they decided to seek other companies to effectively purchase Q Studios and take over the management of Blood, leaving 3D Realms to focus exclusively on Shadow Warrior. 
Monolith heard of this opportunity and in late 1996 purchased Q Studios, eventually purchasing the full intellectual property and rights to all Blood-related assets in January of 1997. So, at this point, 3D Realms was effectively no longer affiliated with Blood, with Monolith assuming full ownership of the property. Under that new ownership, Blood would release to the public as a shareware episode in March of 1997, with a full release coming just a couple months later in May. Blood would represent Monolith's first complete game released to market, albeit with the footnote that the release was due to acquisition rather than internal development. Critical and player response to Blood was overall positive, and it didn't take long before talk began of creating a sequel, built entirely in-house at Monolith. At the same time, Monolith began looking at other potential ideas for internally developed games, and all of that discussion and exploration would eventually coalesce around two projects— Blood 2, which would be a direct sequel to Blood, and Shogo Mobile Armor Division, a first-person shooter that also mixed in anime mech combat, albeit still in a traditional first-person shooter perspective and framework. Both games would enter into full-fledged development in 1997, and would be the first two titles to utilize Monolith's new LithTech 3D engine, which, like we talked about, had evolved from the direct engine effort the team had been working with Microsoft on. The LiftTech engine, similar to the latest IdTech engine power in Quake, would be a full, truly three-dimensional engine, with support for texture mapping, full 3D spaces and movement, advanced lighting, verticality and depth, and the ability to utilize 3D accelerator cards to improve its overall performance. Shogo would be the first of the two games to make it to store shelves, releasing in October of 1998, while Blood 2 would release one month later in November. Both games would be released with high sales expectations, and both would, interestingly, vastly underperform those expectations. Now, you might be asking, what caused that lack of performance? Well, part of it can be attributed to overall game quality. While Shogo was well-liked amongst critics, it still fell short of the development team's original goals and ambitions, and the end product was more of a traditional first-person shooter as opposed to anything truly revolutionary. Blood 2, by contrast, wasn't really rated well at all, and was in fact a somewhat bug-ridden experience, having been rushed to market to attempt to compete with other first-person shooters of the time. The quality of the titles, however, was not the biggest issue facing the Monolith team. The real issue, and one that affected the entire first-person shooter genre, is that in mid-November of 1998, a brand new game would release that would nearly single-handedly redefine what a first-person shooter could be. This title would be as influential as Doom was for its time, and would serve to set the stage for a major shift in the first-person shooter market, where a genre previously known only for insane, fast-paced action would begin to integrate narrative with an interconnected, well-designed world full of little touches that made the environment, settings, and story feel more immersive than ever before. That game, you might have guessed was Valve Software's Half-Life. Half-Life was an incredibly important release in computer game history, as it represented one of the first times that a first-person shooter would shine a spotlight on story and broader world building. Rather than simply having a collection of independent levels and episodes with a loose storyline, Half-Life would present a full world for gamers to explore, with individual areas connected to each other seamlessly. There were no end-of-level summary screens because the entire game was almost like a single multi-stage level spanning the entirety of the game's narrative. Further, the game would utilize a number of non-player characters that would serve both as flavor text as well as a way to provide story and exposition to keep the plot moving. There were no real cutscenes or stops to the action. 
You were the star in the adventure, and you experienced every aspect of the game with full control over your own actions. Once Half-Life released, the first-person shooter market was forever changed. While there would remain interest in more arcade-centric types of first-person shooter experiences, the vast majority of gamers looked at Half-Life as the pinnacle of the genre, and game development studios as a result began to shift their own products to attempt to better capture the Half-Life style of gameplay. So going back to Monolith, they had just released two first-person shooters right around the same time as a true mammoth release, one of which was well-received but not exactly revolutionary, while the other was bug-ridden and didn't live up to the original Blood's pedigree. To say these two games would be considered a commercial failure, as well as a disappointment across the development team, would be an understatement. Taking these failings as lessons learned, the Monolith team began to think about what their next title would be, with initial brainstorming sessions beginning almost immediately after Shogo and Blood 2 were released. With the recent sting of both releases still fresh on their minds, the team vowed that their next title was going to be a highly polished, transformative experience and would represent the best possible version of a modern first-person shooter in a post-Half-Life world. That vow and commitment is what would eventually lead the team to develop the operative No One Lives Forever. Creating No One Lives Forever was anything but a straightforward, simple process. While the team knew they wanted to create a quality title, they really didn't know exactly what they wanted to include in the game, and the overall story, characters, plot devices, style, and aesthetic would change multiple times over the first several months that the game was in development. The issue, as explained by the Monolith team, was that they were unable to find a publisher for their forthcoming title, so as they began to have discussions with various companies, they often tailored the foundational elements of the game to better meet the desires of those potential publishers. Oftentimes, that meant taking direction from those companies to drive whole-scale shifts in the overall game design, all in the hopes of signing with a company that would be willing to publish their game. Just to give a framework for understanding the sheer variety of changes that the team was working with, No One Lives Forever would, over a period of just a few months, change from being a mission-based straightforward shooter to an anime-based title, to a military-styled game, to a spiritual successor to the mech combat of Shogo, to finally an interactive 1960s-era spy adventure starring a super spy trying to save the world. I can only imagine how difficult it was for the Monolith team to continue to change their designs simply to appease and hopefully woo a publishing partner. Something else to keep in mind, by the way. Like we talked about, Both Shogo and Blood 2 vastly underperformed expectations, and the resulting lack of sales put Monolith in a serious financial bind. My suspicion is that if the company had a bit more financial stability, they may not have gone through so many machinations to try to score a publishing deal. But they were facing true financial hardship, and one account says that prior to finally landing on the Super Spy concept and signing with Fox Interactive as the publisher for the title, Monolith was literally on the verge of going out of business. If they couldn't find an idea that worked, and a publishing partner that would support them, Monolith might have closed their doors in 1999. This luckily didn't happen. And with Fox Interactive as a partner, the team began to develop their 60s spy concept into a fully realized interactive game. To do that, the team took inspiration from a number of spy movies and television shows from the 1960s, including Our Man Flint and Get Smart, primarily as it related to the overall tone of the story, the types of weapons and gadgets available to the player, and the overall gameplay mix of action and stealth. 
Narrative and the overall quality of the story was also a key element that the team focused on during the creation of the title, with game designer Craig Hubbard stating that all of these elements had to be integrated into a singular cohesive experience that, at all times, would need to evoke the feel of the era in which the game took place, while ensuring the player felt like the hero of one of those 1960s spy adventures. Early iterations of the game did just that, with a suave, handsome leading character named Adam Church working for an intelligence organization called MI0, known in the game world as Her Majesty's Most Secret Service, which is a clear reference and parody of the real-world MI6 organization and the James Bond film from 1969 entitled On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Work on the game would continue, leading to the public announcement of the title at the 1999 Electronics Entertainment Expo, or E3. While the game was still in active development, the gaming press and broader gaming community began to get excited about Monolith's new title. Here was a game that looked like a perfect complement to the recently released GoldenEye 007, which was Rare's Nintendo 64 classic that had been released a couple years prior. The press, in particular, began praising the similarities between GoldenEye and No One Lives Forever, and despite the fact that the game didn't have the James Bond license, it was shaping up to be a solid James Bond-esque experience. The only issue with that, though, is that the Monolith team had never intended No One Lives Forever to mimic a James Bond-styled adventure. They wanted to create their own take on a 1960s spy game, and while they wanted their game to constantly evoke the feel of the era, they weren't interested in simply copying James Bond. Now, from my perspective, I don't really know how the team didn't see the very obvious similarities between their title and James Bond. I mean, it's James Bond. He's pretty much the super spy, and the rough structure of No One Lives Forever certainly seemed like it was essentially a computerized version of a fan-made Bond story. But that's not what Monolith had in mind at all. So they went back to the drawing board, And during the summer of 1999, the team introduced an extensive list of changes to the game that would help differentiate it from James Bond, with undoubtedly the biggest shift being the change from a male protagonist to a female lead. Instead of a game centered on super suave Adam Church, gamers around the world would be introduced to thief-turned-intelligence agent Kate Archer. This shift to controlling a female protagonist, which was a relative rarity in gaming at the time, and honestly still somewhat a rarity even today, allowed the team to explore a different side of 1960s culture, primarily the fact that women were oftentimes seen as incapable of performing the same job as a man. How could a woman possibly have the physicality or cunning needed to succeed in the world of espionage? In the minds of many of the time, they simply couldn't, and Monolith included this general concept as a plot device throughout the game, where you are constantly berated and oftentimes unfairly criticized for the work that you accomplish. Now, I'm not saying full-scale gender equality is 100% a thing today, because it's not, but back in the 60s, it was objectively worse, and No One Lives Forever as a period piece of sorts depicted that of-the-time cultural norm as a core tenet of the experience. Beyond the cultural gender stereotypes, the team used the shift to a female lead as an opportunity to make the various gadgets in the game more interesting, using common feminine products like lipstick or designer sunglasses as the mechanisms by which gadgets would be able to be concealed in plain sight. Rather than a tube of lipstick simply being used as a cosmeceutical, it would also double as a throwable grenade. That nice-smelling perfume could also be used to emit a cloud of stunning mist that would stop enemies dead in their tracks. The sunglasses that look ever so chic when out on the town concealed a highly advanced mine and laser detection system. 
These are just a few examples of the inventive gadgets that the team built into the experience. Turning our attention to the underlying technology used in the game, No One Lives Forever would be the first title to utilize the newest evolution of the LithTech engine, known as LithTech 2.5. As with many game engines of the time, developers would frequently iterate upon the core framework and code, introducing new features to enhance whatever title the game engine was being used for. For No One Lives Forever, the engine would be upgraded to support a higher number of polygons across both scenes and characters, and would integrate player-controllable vehicles into the mix, which would end up being used in several levels across the game. The artificial intelligence for the enemy characters in the game was also upgraded, and computer-controlled minions would often assess their surroundings, detecting noises and investigating disturbances, and having the ability to duck in and out of cover even using objects in the game world like flipped-over tables to help enhance their survivability. Around this time, this was absolutely not the norm for AI characters. It was one of the first games to include such advanced behavioral artificial intelligence routines. One final aspect of the game that I want to touch upon is the music, composed by industry veteran Guy Whitmore. While I'm going to save my opinion on the ultra-groovy spy soundtrack for later, I want to talk about how he actually created the music, which I found pretty interesting. Long-time listeners might recall that I've spoken about music creation, and specifically music synthesis, previously, most notably while discussing the iMuse system pioneered by LucasArts. I don't intend to dive back into iMuse itself today, but what I do want to talk about is the concept of an adaptive score, which is effectively what systems like iMuse enable. An adaptive score in gaming is a soundtrack that, rather than being composed of a singular predefined set of tracks, will instead adapt to the action on the screen. If you're sneaking around an enemy facility, the music might play at a slower tempo with a softer overall set of instruments. Trip an alarm, and the music will crescendo and switch to a fast-paced, action-oriented pitch with a pulse-raising tempo. This transition, rather than simply fading from one track to the next, happens smoothly, almost as though the soundtrack were designed around your actions specifically, even though the game itself couldn't possibly predict what actions a player would take. Composing that kind of score requires the use of what are called stems, which are small pieces of music that can be combined in a number of different ways that allow for the natural transition of one musical motif to the next. Guy Whitmore used this technique to great extent, composing a soundtrack that would, literally, be tailored to your specific experience as you played the game. With music, technology, and overall design finally coming together, No One Lives Forever would release to widespread acclaim in November of the year 2000. Critics and gamers alike loved the game, with many proclaiming that it was the best first-person shooter since Half-Life. They praised the game's storyline, acting, graphics, music, and overall sense of direction. And for the time, it was one of the higher-rated first-person shooters in recent years, even going so far as to win a number of Game of the Year awards from various publications across the industry. And yet, the game just didn't sell all that well. It honestly baffles me a little bit as to why that was the case. But the fact is, it only sold a little over 35,000 copies by the end of the year, with that number ballooning to 350,000 copies sold by 2002. In comparison to other popular first-person shooters of the time, like Unreal Tournament and Quake 3, it wasn't even close. Both of those sold millions of copies over a shorter period of time. 
Despite those less than stellar sales though, the game would receive both a computer-based sequel and a spin-off, as well as a port to the Sony PlayStation 2 system, which for some reason that I honestly don't know why, would use an alternate soundtrack other than Guy Whitmore's original adaptive score. I'm not planning on playing the PS2 version of the game anytime soon, but pretty much every article and review I was able to find suggested that this version of the title was not the one you'd want to experience. And even beyond that, Guy Whitmore's score not being there, that's pretty much a deal breaker for me. But the original version of No One Lives Forever on PC certainly is a game you'd want to experience. So you might be asking, well, how can I play that title today? And the short answer to that is... Uh, You really can't, assuming you want to play the game legally, so to speak. This is one of those situations where the intellectual property and the overall rights to the game are stuck in a bunch of legal red tape involving numerous companies that have acquired bits and pieces of other companies over the years, so much so that there doesn't appear to be anyone that truly knows who owns the right to the game. And with that uncertainty, no company is willing to take a chance at standing up and saying, sure, here's the license, when there's a very real chance that some other company might stand up and say, nice try, I'm going to sue you now. But that's not to say that there haven't been efforts to revitalize the franchise, and in particular, Night Dive Studios, which is a company dedicated to remastering and making older titles runnable on modern computer systems, tried to acquire the rights to the game back in 2014. Unfortunately, despite having access to the source code, they could not work through all of the legal issues and the project had to be abandoned. Today, that leaves individuals two choices for playing the game. Either purchase a physical copy of the game via a reseller or download a copy of the game from somewhere on the internet. If you choose to go that route, there is a fan-made modernization of the game and both its spin-off and sequel entitled No One Lives Forever Revival, which allows you to run the game on modern PCs with a number of quality-of-life improvements such as widescreen support and better frame rates than the original version. It's certainly a legal gray area if you decide to go that route, but the fact is, there's not many other options available if you want to play the game. While No One Lives Forever might not be readily available today, and its legacy is partly affected by its limited availability, the company behind the title, Monolith, would go on to become a very successful game development company, with such titles as the Fear series and, more recently, Shadow of Mordor and Shadow of War being resounding successes for the team. Their Lithtech engine would similarly enjoy success throughout the years, as the company would license the underlying technology to other developers looking to make their games using a proven framework. It may not be as popular as Unity or the Unreal engines, but it is still in use, even today. The fact that No One Lives Forever has been relegated to history is a travesty. This is, quite possibly, one of the more underrated titles in gaming history, and making it even worse is the fact that it is literally unavailable in any legal capacity today. My hope is that one day, we're all able to live in a world where we can experience No One Lives Forever free from the stigma of questionable downloads or marked-up resale prices. But until that time, we can only work with what we have. Regardless, the operative No One Lives Forever is certainly a title that deserves to be remembered. It may not have been a commercial success, but that in no way minimizes the significance or the quality of the experience.
are now going to shift to start talking about what it feels like to play the game today versus when it was released around 20-ish, a little over 20 years ago. So just to refresh everybody's memory, No One Lives Forever is a first-person shooter that was released in the year 2000. And I want to talk about that a little bit and how it differs, how it's kind of the the new breed, so to speak, of first-person shooter, or at least it belongs to the new breed of first-person shooter in comparison to the games that came before it. So let's look at a comparison between the Doom era of first-person shooters and the era in which No One Lives Forever was released. So let's look at a few different categories. One of the biggest differences between Doom era first person shooters and post Half-Life era, because really this whole era is being driven primarily by the fact that Half-Life was released. One of the biggest changes was the addition of story, actually having a narrative built into the game other than some flavor text before an episode or some introductory text after an episode to introduce the next episode. That was what we were seeing in Doom and Quake and those kind of games. Post Half-Life, there was an actual story for all of the first person shooters, or at least the ones that followed the Half-Life model. That was a big change. There were also a ton of more complex interactions in the environment. Before, in the Doom era, you might have to hit a switch. You might be able to hit a switch, or you might be able to find a secret wall. Now, you're looking at things where you have truly interactive items in the environment, sometimes even vehicles that you could ride around on, which would have been unheard of back in the earlier 90s. There are also typically more item interactions. So rather than just have weapons or health packs that you could walk over, a lot of the more modern first-person shooters added items into the mix where you actually had an inventory of sorts that you'd be able to use those items. Now, I do want to say that there were games back in the Doom era that had an item-based inventory of sorts. Most prominently, Duke Nukem 3D did, as well as Dark Forces, just to name a couple. But not all of them had that, and those inventories, even though they had those items, were relatively light in terms of interaction. Now that we're talking about the post-Doom era and kind of the post-Half-Life era, we're starting to get into much more detailed, much more complex interactions with those items. Another big change was the enemy artificial intelligence, where rather than just have a bunch of semi-mindless enemies that would gang up on you, now you had enemies that could actually work together. They might actually manipulate the environment that they're in in order to get an advantage or to uh, to achieve an advantage over you as the player. So the AI routine started to get much more advanced around this time. And beyond the graphics capabilities, which were now true three-dimensional worlds with 3D acceleration where appropriate, the world design was a major change. Now, post-Half-Life, worlds were created. It's not just a collection of levels. You actually had pseudo-real-life kind of locations, or at least it felt like real-life locations. Even the fantastical kinds of locations that you might encounter felt lived in. They felt fully developed. It wasn't just a level. You were truly exploring an interactive world in comparison to games that came before, which were really more focused on that individual level and chaining those levels together into episodes. A couple of other uh, items to mention, just this is more control-centric. Now, post-Half-Life, you have native mouse look in pretty much every 
single first-person shooter. Back with Doom and Doom era games, a lot of times you would be controlling your character using purely a keyboard, or if you were using a mouse, you didn't really have mouse look because mouse look isn't really all that usable unless you're in a true three-dimensional space. And then beyond that, you also have the modern control scheme of the WASD on the keyboard in order to move your character around, and modern controls around strafing and turning and all that good stuff. So pretty much post-Half-Life, once Half-Life came out, and like I said, there were some first-person shooters even before Half-Life that were dabbling in some of these elements. But post-Half-Life, every first-person shooter that was being made, for the most part, People were trying to get on that bandwagon. People were trying to mimic and copy and evolve even the state of what Half-Life was able to introduce. So with that comparison out of the way, let's talk about No One Lives Forever. So No One Lives Forever is a period piece, so to speak, meant to embody and evoke the 1960s spy adventure kind of culture. And every aspect of the game, literally every aspect of the game, is steeped in that culture from the design of the characters, to the music, to the writing. It is an incredibly immersive experience. And the game sets itself apart from other first-person shooters of the time in a variety of ways. So let's talk through each of those ways that it kind of elevates the bar, so to speak. Let's talk first about the world and level diversity. I will say that No One Lives Forever doesn't have quite as interconnected of a world as Half-Life, in that the world doesn't feel 100% seamless, and there are very distinct levels in the game. Each level, so to speak, is split up into multiple scenes, and scenes can vary wildly in terms of goals, environments, and setting. For the most part, though, each collection of scenes that make up a level are pretty well integrated with each other. And speaking of scenes, even though they are effectively smaller parts of an overall level, I wouldn't think of them as small. You might hear the word scene and think, oh, well, that's just like a bite-sized piece of a level. No, each scene is pretty much the same as a level in any other game. And with over 60 scenes in the game, there is a ton of gameplay to be had here. Scenes and levels throughout the game have a ton of variety, and they are all very much influenced by the kinds of scenes you might see in a spy movie. For example, Stuck on a hijacked airplane with the only way off being to parachute out? Check, we got that. Escaping a sinking ship? Yep, got that too. On board a train with a bunch of bad guys that you have to fight your way through only to escape by decoupling one of the train cars from the rest of the train? Uh, Yeah, that's there too. You know, I could go on, but I won't because you get the point. There are a number of levels that in many games would be considered set pieces. In here, they're just integrated into the vast expanse of the game's levels. Beyond the world and level diversity, the overall narrative structure of the game is also unique. As the game plays out, you'll encounter cutscenes interspersed between various levels, and all of those cutscenes are designed to be cinematic, using framing and camera techniques that were most often seen in cinema as opposed to video games. In between levels, you'll also be introduced to the game's variety of gadgets, weapons, and vehicles, giving you a chance to try out your arsenal before being asked to use them in a mission setting. Gadgets, by the way are a major distinguishing characteristic of the game, as is the mission loadout option at the beginning of each level. Rather than simply needing to scrounge weapons around each level, which you can do, you can also pick from any gadget or weapon that you've unlocked to better prepare for each mission. There are a huge variety of gadgets in the game, ranging from offensive items like lipstick grenades to utility items like a cigarette lighter that doubles for a welding torch that can cut through combination locks to more defensive items like bandages that can prevent excessive bleeding. 
the sheer variety of gadgets opens up a number of gameplay possibilities as you play the game, allowing for the ability to tackle the game using either in-your-face action or more careful stealth. And speaking of stealth, almost every mission in the game can technically be accomplished using stealth, and the game encourages, and in some cases requires, you to use stealth tactics to progress through the game. We're going to talk more about the stealth gameplay in a little bit, but for now, just recognize that it was a unique addition to the traditional first-person shooter genre. One of the biggest changes to the traditional first-person formula was the fact that the game featured a strong female protagonist that, despite the persecution she faces throughout the game due to her gender and cultural stereotypes of the time, remains focused on the mission at hand and ultimately succeeds in saving the world. More about that one also in a few minutes. So before we move on to talk about the more specific aspects of the game, like graphics, sound, and narrative, I do want to take a look at what the back of the box says, because as you all know, I love looking at the back of the box. I think it's really interesting to see how different companies would market their titles to prospective buyers. And around this time, around when No One Lives Forever came out, we kind of started to have internet usage and we were able to get more information readily available than what we may have seen in other games that we've covered just because the time frame was different. But regardless of that fact, I still like looking at the box. I still enjoy seeing how those companies would market their titles. So we're going to look at it anyway. So for No One Lives Forever, the back of the box says, Who wants to live forever? Your mission. Assume the role of Kate Archer, a beautiful but deadly operative working for Unity, a super-secret organization fighting to free the world from the clutches of harm. From tense subterfuge to in-your-face combat, No One Lives Forever ups the ante for plot-driven 1960s-influenced spy action with killer weapons, vivid international locales, and deadly arch-villains. Equipped with an arsenal of powerful weapons and ingenious gadgets, you must unravel a mystery that will lead you halfway around the world in a desperate search for answers. Try not to blow your cover, or you're cool. And then there are some screenshots with some captions, so they are 15 missions across 60 levels, unique situations worthy of any super spy, skydive from a plummeting airliner, fight off killer sharks, and explore twisted jungles. Ride motorcycles and snowmobiles through vast realistic landscapes and environments rich with texture and detail. Choose your weapons carefully, an AK-47 assault rifle and a 9mm silenced automatic, or an M79 grenade launcher and a silent but deadly crossbow with sniper scope. Use stealth to take down the enemy from a distance or charge in with guns blazing. Smart enemies move and react with striking realism. Watch them seek cover, respond to suspicious sounds, or launch coordinated attacks. Multiplayer for up to 16 players. Take your chances in an all-or-nothing good-versus-evil multiplayer game, or go head-to-head -head in deathmatch mode. Choose from over 30 different characters. And finally, featuring Lithtech 2.5 3D Game Operating System. So that is the back of the box for The Operative No One Lives Forever. And it sounds pretty darn great, if you ask me. And I did buy the game when it first came out back in the year 2000, and I did enjoy it at the time. We're going to talk about how it feels to play today as we move into the pseudo-review kind of section. So let's start by talking about the game's graphics. For the era in which the game was created, the game looked really good. 
Environments were detailed and well-designed, and the sheer variety of the environments were all modeled effectively. Animations were generally well done, though I will say that character design left a little bit to be desired when viewed from a modern perspective. This is a tough one, because nearly every first-person shooter made around this time was straddling a transition from primitive 3D acceleration to more full-featured, higher-quality models. For what it's worth, No One Lives Forever's characters were higher quality than many other games of the time, and comparatively, its graphics stood toe-to-toe with other heavyweights from the era. But the character models did age a little bit less gracefully than the rest of the visuals in the game. Overall, though, the game was pleasing to look at, and like I said, in particular, the environments looked great. Moving on to the sound and music, I'm not going to beat around the bush on this one. The soundtrack to the game is absolutely stellar. I'm talking top-tier, amazing, hum-to-yourself-and-sometimes-louder-in-everyday-life kind of stellar. If you have even a passing appreciation for British-style, 60s-era, instrumental, groovy music you're going to love this soundtrack. It's like Austin Powers and James Bond had a baby, with all the best parts of each melded together to create a musical score that was simply superior to many other games of the time, and from my perspective, is one of the better soundtracks ever created for a first-person shooter. The opening theme in particular warrants special mention, as it is just ridiculously good. If you didn't know better, you might think it was stolen from a light-hearted James Bond movie. It's that good. Sound effects are all good as well, but I don't know that any of the sound effects stood out in particular. What did stand out, however, is the voice acting. So the entire game, and all of the characters in the game, whether significant to the story or the equivalent of film extras, were all fully voiced, and in almost all instances, the voices fit the part perfectly. The only character that I had any real issue with was Tom, who was another secret agent from America that you work with for part of the game. I thought his voice acting was much more like the traditional video game caricature of a macho, beefy American. Every other character, though, I thought was spot-on perfect, and was much better than what you would expect from video games made around this time. Bottom line, the auditory environment created by the game was amazing. Moving on to the narrative and story. In No One Lives Forever, you play as Kate Archer, a former thief who joins an intelligence agency known as Unity, whose sole mission is to protect the world from any threats that may arise. Being a woman, Kate is often passed over for opportunities to take part in missions, with the general perception that she must be inferior to her male agent counterparts because she is, in fact, a woman. One day, though, she has an opportunity to take part in a mission, and what starts out as a fairly routine assignment eventually morphs into a world-spanning adventure where you, through a confluence of events, become the only agent able to thwart the efforts of HARM, an organization focused on destroying society as we know it. Through a number of twists and turns, you work your way through over 60 scenes, encounter a number of villains, take part in a series of set-piece moments that could easily be included in any Bond film, and eventually, hopefully, save the world from disaster. So I gotta say, I loved the story in the game, from numerous perspectives. First of all, the overall story itself, high level, was pretty much perfect for this kind of first-person shooter experience. I loved playing as a spy with a bunch of weapons and gadgets that I could use as I saw fit to help me progress my mission, and the story and cutscenes all led to a satisfying conclusion by the time all was said and done. What I may have loved even more, though, 
was Kate's character progression, and the realization by other characters that, at the end of the game, Kate was just as capable as any other agent in Unity. Now, I'm not looking at this purely from the perspective of gender equality in gaming. I'm more looking at it as just a deeply satisfying character arc, and one that I think the team executed flawlessly. I also have to say, the writing in the game was great, and there were some truly funny dialogue exchanges between characters in the game, a number of which were simply incidental conversations that could be entirely missed or skipped if you're trying to move through the level quickly. If you stop to smell the roses, though, you're going to hear some dialogue that rivals films like Austin Powers in their comedic delivery. Truly, this isn't one of those, oh yeah, that game is funny kind of situation. This is legitimate comedy done well. Overall, I thought the narrative, story, and writing all were amazing. Moving on to the playability and controls, the game controls exactly like you would expect a modern first-person shooter to control, with mouse look for shooting and looking around your environment, and the keyboard used for navigating around the game world and interacting with various objects in that world. Honestly, there's not much to say about the controls. They pretty much function like any first-person shooter made in the last 25 or so years. What I do want to talk about a bit, though, is the playability, because I do believe the game faltered here a little bit. The biggest issue, from my perspective, is the integrated stealth gameplay mechanics. So to take a step back, and we mentioned this already, each level in the game allows you to tackle its challenges via either a straightforward run-and-gun approach or a more tactical, stealthy approach. Now, I'm going to say, I love the concept of using stealth in the game. Slinking around levels with a silenced pistol, picking off enemies before they can see you, it's all supremely satisfying, and when it worked, it felt great. The issue is, at least for me, stealth failed me more times than it was successful. I don't know if this was a factor of my gameplay style, or if the game just didn't execute stealth as well as I would have liked, but there were a number of times where I honestly didn't know why a given action would either break my stealth approach, or even conversely, why a given action wouldn't break my stealth approach. So let me explain on this one. There are some levels that, by default, you start out without anyone noticing you, and you're encouraged to remain in the shadows, so to speak, to avoid detection. In some parts of those levels, I tried to shoot enemies with a silenced weapon, only to have enemies from several rooms over charge at me and activate a level-wide alarm. In other instances, I shot several enemies with an AK-47 machine gun, and enemies in the next room over were none the wiser. So I don't know what was going on there. I guess the best way to describe it is that it's just inconsistent. And because I couldn't rely on stealth to be effective, I ended up playing most levels like a traditional run-and-gun first-person shooter. That gameplay, by the way, the whole run-and-gun kind of first-person shooter gameplay, that held up really well. But I wanted to like stealth way more than I did. Also, even if you tried to utilize stealth and were somewhat effective, many levels had a level-wide alarm that in some cases couldn't be deactivated, or at least I couldn't figure out how to deactivate them. So what that meant was that you couldn't re-enter stealth after the immediate threat passed. You were stuck playing in action mode, and that was pretty much all you would have to do or all you could do for the rest of that level. There is one aspect of the game, however, where this totally falls apart. And that is the collection of levels where you have to avoid contact altogether, otherwise you fail the mission immediately. I honestly did not care too much for those missions, mainly because, like I mentioned, the stealth was pretty inconsistent, and I felt like I failed a number of times for reasons that really weren't my fault. 
Other than the stealth mechanics, the one other mechanic that I wasn't particularly fond of was the fact that within a given collection of scenes, you had no way to replenish your actual hit points. Now granted, there is a body armor system in the game, and body armor pickups are readily available throughout pretty much every level. The issue, though, is that sometimes you get hit with bullets that bypass your armor, causing your health to dwindle. And if your health reaches zero, it's game over, which is pretty much what you would expect. From my perspective, I would have rather had an in-game way of replenishing your hit points, especially because some levels or scene collections are quite long, and if you get into trouble early on, it's entirely possible for you to die even with the full complement of body armor covering your body. It's not a huge issue, but it is one that introduced some friction to the experience, and I wish they had taken a different design approach to that aspect of the game. My general advice as it relates to both the health issue as well as the stealth gameplay design is to save often. There's no penalty for saving your game, and you can do so at any point, so it behooves you to keep your progress up to date. Otherwise, you run the risk of having to restart from a prior checkpoint, which pretty much means the beginning of the level you're on. Otherwise, though, the game controls fine. It's just that some of the design decisions I personally disagreed with. So overall, how did it feel? Bottom line, overall, the game feels amazing to play. The combination of everything, from the graphics to the sound and ridiculously cool soundtrack to the writing and overall narrative, all of it adds up to an experience that is, for the most part, a joy to play. I already covered my major issues with the game a few minutes ago, so I'm not going to rehash them here. But what I will say, though, is that the game effectively creates the sensation of being a spy in the 1960s, and it is an experience I genuinely enjoyed nearly from start to finish. So, what is our verdict? Where does No One Lives Forever fit within our context of classic games? I'm going to start off by saying No One Lives Forever is criminally underrated. This was truly an amazing experience with nearly every aspect of the game putting a smile on my face. It was not perfect, and it's not without its faults, but taken as a total package, I truly believe this is one of the better first-person shooters and perhaps just overall games created in the last 30 years. It is that good. And the fact that it isn't available today in any easily accessible, purchasable format is a shame. And I truly wish there was a way to work through the legal issues preventing its broader release, and stymieing any chance of a remaster, or even better, a full-scale remake. Regardless, though, this is a game that has stood the test of time and remains an engaging, fun experience even today. For those reasons, and the reasons mentioned already, No One Lives Forever absolutely deserves its spot in our pantheon of classic gaming. It is an experience that I believe everyone should have at some point in their lifetime, and if you even have a passing interest in quality first-person shooter gameplay with an outstanding soundtrack and story, you owe it to yourself to seek it out. This is definitely one you should not miss, and I feel very comfortable recommending it to anyone. It is, beyond a question, a member of our pantheon of classic gaming.
that was our episode on the operative No One Lives Forever. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, recommendations, or just talk about classic games and technology in general, I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you could reach out. I have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. I have a Twitter account with the handle at classicgamingt, and we also have a Discord server with the link in the show notes below. We're having tons of great discussions out on Discord. That's probably the best way to interact with me as well as the rest of the community around this podcast. We have a game of the month going on, which is Toonstruck for July, which will be coming up at the end of the month, an episode on that. I also have the next eight or so episode roadmap posted out there. So if anybody really wants to get engaged with the podcast, Discord is the place to be. Once again, that link is in the show notes. Before we sign off for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is going to be focused on the very first Mortal Kombat. So if anybody has any particularly fond or not so fond memories of that experience, please let me know. I'm definitely interested in hearing what you think. At the same time, I recognize that you're likely listening to this podcast on any number of podcast services. So if you feel so inclined, it would be great if you could leave us a review. This is not about bolstering star counts. It is not about trying to harvest a ton of five-star reviews, though if that happens, awesome, that means we're doing something right. No, what it's really all about is getting the feedback needed to continue to make this the best possible podcast that I can. And the only way to do that is to get feedback from the community to make sure that we're hitting the mark and that there are no gaps that we need to address. We get new listeners every single day, which is absolutely incredible. I love the community that we're building. I just want to make sure that we continue to deliver the best possible podcast that we can. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on Mortal Kombat. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye.